Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we take a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Brendan Stiley, your co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. And I'm Naomi Soto, your other co-host and health policy professional based in California. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning political shows. We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Sunday, May 9th, 2021, as we record. Happy Mother's Day to everybody out there who is a mother. Or does any mothering. Absolutely. Very, very important. And as I will get into and was talked about a bit on the Sunday shows, women have carried so much weight during this pandemic. Mothers and in, in society particular. overall, but especially in this last year and a yeah. half. So... Thank you for getting us all through this. Yeah, I have a lot of feelings and additional comments, but I'm going to save it for the show because it's going to come up. Yes. Let's begin with show ratings and what show you covered. Shows, plural. So I looked at three shows. So I looked at State of the Union, which was hosted by Jake Tapper. I looked at This Week, which was with George Stephanopoulos. And I looked at Meet the Press, which was with Chuck Todd. All three regulars, I'm realizing. Yeah. Now, for ratings, I think I would give this week a two. It had a panel that lasted two hours. And uh, Do You Buy That came back, but it was not very interesting. So you just, you didn't buy it. I did not buy it. (laughs) Did not buy it. Uh, And then I think I would give both State of the Union and Meet the Press a four. Yeah, a four. They both had some decent interviews, and I think they both have a, had like a purpose, and I yeah. respect that. Awesome. How about you? So I looked at the F's, Face the Nation, and <laughs> Fox News Sunday. I, thought we, I was so confused because I was like, we're doing letter ratings. I've gotten reprobated on letter ratings. <laughs> no, just they started with F's, and they were, okay, so first of all, I'd say Fox News Sunday was okay. It's in that three category. Kind of leaning a little more towards the bad, but but I'm going to give it the okay, mostly because the top story on Fox News, what led the show was that Donald Trump continues to be banned from Facebook. And it's like, okay, nothing really changed there. I, I think there's a lot more important things going on in the world, like the jobs numbers that were disappointing, or the cyber attack that took place that basically put a pause on all gas in the East Coast corridor that's kind of important, or COVID numbers dramatically declining, or what's going on in India. There's just so much happening right now in the world to say that Donald Trump continuing to be banned from Facebook, that's not really a top story. Although they did have a very good booking related to that, it doesn't mean it should be the focus of the entire show, I think. And then face the nation was john dickerson he was on hosting once again and i'm going to give that a very good that's a five it goes beyond good because i it just stood out in my head as something that had a lot of really interesting insights that i walked away with and was like wow almost basically every interview i walked away with an interesting almost paradigm shifting insight that makes me 
really want to think about something paradigm shifting yes. insight yes wow yes and i'm going to talk about that in the journalism section so that's that's where we are well let's jump to it then yeah quality questionable naomi what was the high quality moment that stood out to you in the shows you looked at so my quality moment is a theme of a special segment that I saw on two shows. And it was looking at the state of working mothers in this country right now. Oh my goodness, that's amazing. Yes, it was like whole segments. It was particularly really well done on This Week, which had kind of like a reported package, which was led by Rebecca Jarvis. She's the ABC News Chief Business, Economics and Technology Correspondent. And there was a whole like, panel like expert panel about women in the workforce and there was also a data download so just wanted to share a few snippets from those two to three segments can i pause you there for a moment perhaps because this is amazing your quality moment listen ladies and gentlemen (laughs) we did not plan this beyond one of us saying oh i have a quality and i have a questionable we did not say what it was correct your quality is these segments on working moms, right? Correct. My questionable is the missed opportunity of not having a special segment about working moms on Face the Nation this week. Interesting. Well, good These job. Issues, the issue was mentioned in two interviews, but there was no special aside, no focus, no deep dive, no continuing conversation on it. And I thought, what a missed opportunity. This is kind of questionable because women carry so such a load. Yeah. And this is the, like this theme ish is going to continue in my journalism segment because you're right. People talked about the jobs report and it kind of went in various weird ways. It wasn't always unified. But the amazing thing is we didn't coordinate and yet it's perfect. It's amazing. <laughs> Naomi, continue, please. Okay. So wanted to start off with the a couple of clips from the reported piece by Rebecca Jarvis. Again, she's on the ABC News team. For a year of loss, the pandemic ravaging the service sector, restaurants, hotels, clothing shops, where women, particularly women of color, hold a majority of jobs, and hospitals where women make up 77% of workers, the early signs of a recovery. But even though hiring is picking up and unemployment among women is ticking down, now 5.6%, the headlines masking another trend. The problem is that as women, decide that they need to stay home either to take care of um, family members, particularly children who aren't in school, they're not going to be looking for jobs and they won't be reflected in the unemployment statistics. Now, more than 2 million women have dropped out of the workforce. Another 165,000 left just last month, an untold number still struggling with the balance. And since we know that women are responsible for two thirds of work around the house, they were more likely to shoulder um, this responsibility. To fully recover the remaining 8.2 million jobs lost to the pandemic, everyone, women and men, needs to get back to work. So I thought that was helpful. You hear Rebecca Jarvis there talking to Karen Kimbrough. She's the chief economist at LinkedIn and really exploring that while Industries are coming back online. Industries that are recovering slowly, particularly the service industry, tourist industry, those are often filled with women. And so they're impacted. And on the other side, they're impacted by the needs at home. Yeah, absolutely. 
So after this reported piece, like I mentioned, George had a expert panel. It included Fatima Gossgrave. She's the president of the National Women's Law Center. Diane Swank, the chief economist and managing director of Grant Thornton. And Lorena Yee, she's the chief diversity and inclusion officer for McKinsey. And they kind of had a conversation looking a little bit at the jobs numbers and how and really what that might be meaning, particularly for working mothers. Lorena, these numbers for women really are staggering. Some economists are calling this pandemic downturn the she-session. Well, absolutely. And for companies, the biggest tax has been on working mothers. Just take over the course of the pandemic. We saw that women overall, one in four, said that they were thinking about stepping back or stepping out. It's a tremendous number. But for working mothers, that number was one in three. And when we asked men and women, when we asked fathers and mothers, how is work from home going? Fathers said, actually, we feel very effective working. Over 70% of them said that they felt that work from home was effective. And over 70% of them said that they had a positive impact on their well-being. Well, guess what? For working mothers, that is not the case. Little over 40% of them felt that this was a positive outcome. As in, most of them felt it was not positive. Yeah. Dads and bros are like, this is working out wonderful. And the mothers are just not doing well. These are things we don't need childcare and free college, as we heard from some male Republicans <laughs> about the Biden proposal last week. I will never forget that. Yeah, so super, super important reporting and information to be shared with us. And I really appreciate it on Meet the Press the way, you know, Chuck Todd didn't have an expert panel like this, and he kind of sprinkled a couple of questions in some of his interviews, and particularly in the panel, some conversations around the jobs numbers. But there was kind of a pretty comprehensive data download that did look at how mothers are doing right now. But for parents, the pandemic presented additional childcare challenges. In fact, you'll take a look at this. The percentage of fathers who stopped looking for work during the height of the pandemic went up two points. Okay, but compare this with mothers. The percentage who stopped looking for work neared 30% in 2020, according to an analysis from the Pew Research Center. And keep in mind, each percentage point here represents more than one million people. And as daycare centers and schools shuttered and learning moved online, many parents became homeschool teachers on top of telework employees. And no surprise, that burden fell a lot more on moms than it did dads. In fact, last fall, teleworking moms were about twice as likely as teleworking dads to say they were responsible for, quote, a lot of childcare duties while also working. Fathers were more likely to say that they were responsible for some child care rather than a lot. Friday's jobs report was a disappointment, and Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen conceded the recovery will be bumpy. The pandemic has shined a light on the unpaid work so many women, especially mothers, do every day. That will be of particular significance as Congress debates issues such as family leave and President Biden's infrastructure proposal. When we come back, what happened to that big jobs comeback we were all expecting? What does it mean for President Biden's big spending plans? Odd way to end with the question that you just answered. Well, and also that he acts like it's a completely separate segment as right. opposed to the state of women working is going to be reflected in those jobs numbers. Exactly. Like that was, I almost made this like an 80% quality, 20% questionable because right. so, so many times on today's shows, I felt like 
we were talking about issues as, as if they were separate things. Like yeah. we're talking about healthcare and space, but <laughs> they're not separate issues. They're very much interconnected. Yeah. But overall, really great that there were these focused looks. Super focused. At Working Moms. Now, it being Mother's Day, it was kind of like... You better. You better do it. But it should be an ongoing conversation and an ongoing discussion of just how much is on the shoulders of moms in our society, what kind of support they are getting, both culturally from dads, but also policy-wise, right? right? Yeah. Like, what There's are the so policies? There's so many angles to explore. Like, mm-hmm. just in terms of, like, journalistic curiosity, there's a lot to explore. Absolutely. So, anyway, I have more things. I'm going to save them for my journalism segment. Brendan, you mentioned your questionable a little bit. About- it was Yeah, it was that there was a missed opportunity on Face the Nation to do something similar to what you talked about, especially since Face the Nation took some time at the end of their episode to celebrate the moms who work on Face the Nation itself and named a whole bunch of moms who do it, including, of course, Margaret Brennan, who is now on maternity leave with her second child. But take a listen to these moments, few moments where the issue did kind of peak up in conversations. You're going to hear two clips here. The first with Minneapolis Federal Reserve Bank President Neil Kashkari. We've, of course, heard him in the past on Face the Nation. And then you're also going to hear from Gina Raimondo. She is the Commerce Secretary for President Biden. We have 30 seconds before the break. Anything else in the April jobs report that stood out to you? Well, women continue to be uh, disproportionately affected by the pandemic. I think the uh, women, the data went down for women, actually. There was no job growth. I don't want to overreact to one month, but the childcare issues uh, continue to be a paramount. And that's why getting schools fully reopened, getting kids vaccinated, that's also going to be key to really restoring our economy and getting back to full productivity. Uh, women in particular, between three and four million lost jobs in this pandemic. It fell on their shoulders because in most uh, families, women are, bear the burden of the pandemic uh, more than any others. Is there a particular uh, friction to women getting back into the workforce that you've seen uh, that makes this recovery particularly difficult for women? Yes, absolutely. So, so first of all, women are clustered in the industries that were hit the most, you know, the lower skill service jobs, waitresses, working in hotels. And we all know that they, those industries were hit the hardest. So women were put out of work uh, in greater numbers. But the reality is, um, as you say, you know, women are more likely to be the caretakers. So lack of affordable child care hits women the hardest. The fact that schools were closed and many still remain closed hits women harder. So you'll see the issue came up and in both instances, one of the major points discussed was related to child care needs. The fact that schools were closed and women struggled by having to provide child care to their kids during the day during the middle of the day and what's crazy to me is that we as a society think okay well child care is something that is needed when school is out of session like school is important to our economy not just because it educates our populace but because it allows parents to actually work and provides child care during the day but if all of these commerce-related people, the Commerce Secretary, the President of the Federal Reserve Bank, are talking about school in the 
in the way of it serving as childcare as one of its main purposes. And that if school is not there, then therefore it's hurting our economy, literally hurting our economy. Then why don't we talk about school in that way ever, ever? We don't. School is not designed to provide childcare. We know this because it ends in the middle of the day, not during the workday. It doesn't go until 5 p.m. It doesn't go until 6 p.m. It doesn't go until 7 p.m. It's not available to serve in this role of childcare. And then it's got all these random days that are off, these vacation days, these teacher work days. And then for a giant chunk of the summer, school's not there. And families and women have to scramble to find out where their kids are are going to be so they can contribute to the economy. If we genuinely, and it looks like these leaders of our economy say that school is, an important role of it is childcare, then why in God's name do we not act that way in the way that we structure the school day, the way that we structure education for our kids? That is what's insane. And when you shut down schools, why don't we recognize like that's going to hurt the economy, not just hurt the kids? Right. And I there's the actual instruction that children get throughout the day, right? Instructional minutes, teaching minutes. Mm-hmm. But then there's like schools as an institution that yes. anchor a child's experience and could be hugely valuable in being the center point of extended support right to the parents themselves and so you're like okay school you know contracted labor hours to to teachers maybe is from eight to three but like we recognize that schools themselves are important to be open from seven to six right right like we need to rethink the actual perception we have of schools to match the needs for working parents and, and what I, and what it's actually being used for exactly. right a lot of families are using school as childcare. duh that's how it works i mean perhaps but like children still need to get educated right yes, like we absolutely. still need like an educated i know populace. i'm not saying we don't need education right but i'm saying that's why i i push us to think that school is not just about teaching it's like school is an institution it's right. not what's being done it's the place yeah and that hasn't always been the case, right? When women weren't predominantly in the workforce. It when, was only teaching. When, you're right. When the public education system was introduced in this country in the 1800s, that was not the case. But it is now, and yet we still have this antiquated way uh, and schedule for school, assuming that families are the way they were in the 1800s. And that's just not the case. Yeah, and alternatively, it imagines that the U.S. has a social safety net akin to European countries where there is support for children outside of schools. If we were a country that had subsidized childcare centers, right. maybe we wouldn't need schools to be this bigger thing, but right. we don't. And so that's hence the need to focus on, on what the school could be. Yeah. But that's another area where the conversation should be leading. Obviously, if we're saying that schools being out are hurting the economy, not just the education of our children. Again, Basic journalistic curiosity should warrant exploring these conversations. Agreed. Well, how about that taking us to our issues in journalism? (laughs) Yeah, this is pretty much a continuation of what I'm going to be talking about. So I wanted to focus on this new jobs report that came out. 
that said that the U.S. economy only added 266,000 new jobs in April. This is well below what economists were hoping for. It's well below what the Biden administration was anticipating getting. This report propelled some questions that felt lacking, to to put it blunt, and felt like Republican talking points Mm. and didn't explore this premise of low economic employment numbers on a broader level. Yeah, I, do, I also want to point out just for framing for the audience, the expectation was that the U.S. would add one million jobs in April, and it was only a quarter of that. Right. And that was a big shock to people because it had added like a million in March. So everyone expected April to have something similar. Yeah, it, it was much, much lower. Yeah. So take a listen to this question that Jake Tapper asks on State of the Union today. He he asked it to Jeffrey Zients. He's the White House COVID response coordinator. So most of the interview was about COVID, but he also was the national or one of the national economic advisors to President Obama. So it's not like it's completely unwarranted to ask him economy questions. So listen to this question and response, but really pay attention to how Jake frames this issue. President Biden has repeatedly cited a study estimating the U.S. would create 7 million jobs this year under the American Rescue Plan. So far, it's fewer than 2 million. Uh, do you still think that 7 million is... So look, so look Jake, my 24-7 focus is yeah. on fighting this pandemic. Um, and that's key for the economy. It's not only key for us returning to a more normal lifestyle, but it's also key for us building back better, for people to get vaccinated and get vaccinated as soon as possible. You know, the president across the first 100 days created more jobs than any president in history. One of the things I did learn as NEC director is not to pay too much attention to any one data point in any one month. If you look look back across the last three months, we've averaged 500,000 jobs. That compares to 60,000 jobs created per month in the prior uh, administration during their last three months. So we're headed in the right direction. But it's a long path out out of the difficult period of time that we've had because of the pandemic. I know that it's a complicated issue, but there are governors now who are going to go off the, the enhanced federal unemployment insurance because they think it's a disincentive for people to go out to work. Uh, as somebody with opinions about disincentives and incentives, do you think that that's possible, that the enhanced unemployment insurance, while obviously well-intentioned, is creating a disincentive, disincentive for some Americans? Look, people want to work. And in fact, labor force participation, those people who are looking for jobs went up last month. There are still difficult hurdles for people working, including health concerns around the pandemic, child care. So the American Rescue Plan was a really important piece of legislation, a historic piece of legislation to help us recover and build back better. So Jake first starts with how disappointing these numbers are. And then the angle that he explores, the only angle he explores in talking about these low employment numbers with the White House is the Republican response, which is that the federal employment benefit, the additional $300 that people are getting if they're on unemployment is disincentivizing work. And of course, that's $300 a week if you are on unemployment, additional to whatever the state offers, which some states give like, I don't know, $150. Yeah, so this kind of plays into a very common Republican conservative trope that we've seen for decades, that there are people who want to live off the government dime and don't want to work, don't want to quote unquote contribute to society. Or you make more money 
being on the system, quote unquote system, than actually working. Right. But my point is, is that it's such an easy angle to be your only angle, to be like, well, Republicans are going to do this. Is that okay? As opposed to kind of determining what the scope of the conversation is for themselves. That's my frustration. I'm not even here to kind of point that Republicans are wrong or right or warranted to pull this federal benefit. But if you're only going to talk about it in one way, to only explore the way in which Republicans are responding means you give credence to that argument to begin with. You're not kind of determining, wait, there might be another angle here that maybe is worth us discussing. Yeah, it's literally just seeing the world in black and white, right? There's the Democratic side and the Republican side. And we have to look at what Republicans are saying. And that's it. And that's it. That's our whole job. Yep. And you'll hear this. As if one of them are right, right? Like, it's very possible that both of the sides are wrong and... It doesn't have anything to do with what their official explanations are, but to serve as simply a mediator between those two right. worldviews. That seems so blah. Yeah. And you hear signs towards the end mention the issue of child care and health concerns of working in the pandemic, but it's kind of like a throwaway line. It's not like the meat of the response itself. So it doesn't raise substantial issues kind of really to the heart of what he's saying. We did see that in an interview that Jake Tapper had with Whip James Clyburn. He's a Democratic congressman from South Carolina. The U.S. economy added only 266,000 new jobs in April, well below economists' predictions. Your state's Republican governor, Henry McMaster, says South Carolina will soon no longer participate in the expanded federal unemployment benefits program past June, he said, because, quote, what was intended to be a short-term financial assistance for the vulnerable and displaced during the height of the pandemic has turned into a dangerous federal entitlement, incentivizing and paying workers to stay at home rather than encouraging them to return to the workplace, unquote. Um, Do you think that for some people, those extra funds are possibly providing a disincentive to work? First of all, Jake, thank you very much for having me and uh, happy Mother's Day uh, to all the mothers out there, especially my two daughters, uh, Jennifer and Angela. But you know, listening to the governor's statement the other day uh, bothered me a little bit in South Carolina, uh, where we have such a sort of, let's just say, female-dominated workforce. And if you look at that jobs report, uh, yes, it was disappointing, but it was more disappointing among women uh, because they are basically the the caregivers, unfortunately. Uh, They are uh, populated uh, in the world of work uh, that is slow coming back. Uh, The teachers, there are child care workers and all of that we have to be very careful. I was disappointed to see the governor say that because I'll tell you, um, we may be talking about uh, the big lie as it relates to the election, but very close to that is this notion that people don't want to work. So what I appreciate here from Whip Clyburn is that he flips the question, the, the premise of the question to begin with. He rejects the notion that people don't have are are disincentivized to work and talks about the plight of women workers in his state being greatly impacted by the pandemic and that that is 
the issue or part of the major issue that is affecting job participation or employment participation. Congressman Clyburn is is extremely astute and he knows what he's doing. But for another guest, we would have just probably focused on what Republican governors are doing and focused completely on potential disincentives for work. Right. He didn't want to go in that direction with the, with the discussion. Exactly. Like Tapper didn't do the work to try other versions of this conversation. I think that's the part that drives me crazy. And then just to close out this segment, I wanted to share what some of the experts are saying about this. And we heard this again on this week. There was an expert panel about women in the workforce. In this clip, you'll hear from Fatima Goss-Graves. She's the president of the National Women's Law Center and Diane Swank, the chief economist and managing director of Grant Thornton. And Fatima, you know, you, we, saw, we showed some of this criticism earlier in the program, some saying that it's the incentives and the stimulus plan that are keeping people at home. What's your response to that? Well, my response is that care is what is keeping people at home and pushing women out of the workforce. And I think what the latest job numbers are telling us is that we won't have a real recovery unless we also attend to the care crisis in this country. That question of care is so central, Diane Swank. People want uh, talking about paid family leave, expanded child care. But one of the big questions is who should fit the bill, taxpayers or businesses? Well, you know, it's interesting because I remember the late 1990s and having some of these discussions and women's participation in the labor force actually peaked in the late 1990s and 2000. We've seen a decline since then. And even before we entered the pandemic, we saw we were lagging in women's participation, other major countries like Japan. And I think that's something that gets lost in translation is how much this has been a rising problem, the care issue we had. Back in the latter part of the 1990s, there was a lot of experimentation as the labor market tightened for women to share jobs, for childcare at work. Those kinds of changes and those kinds of solutions disappeared as we moved into the 2000s. And I think we need to come at this at a holistic um, way. We are There are funds in the $1.9 trillion package that was just passed for childcare, but many of the childcare facilities have closed. Many of the traditional networks that people relied on with their parents during the pandemic were severed because of fear of contagion. And we still need to get access to vaccines to those people who do want to get back to work and want their parents to be able to help. So there's such a holistic way we have to look at this, that it's not just a business problem. It's not just a government problem. It is a societal problem. And without women in the workforce, we cannot grow like we want to. It's leaving money on the table. This is just not the way that anyone thrives. It's how we all get the pie a little smaller and get a smaller share of it. So excellent. That's incredible. And what an important point that I hadn't thought of before was not only are child care centers and schools closed, but that people's informal networks like, you know, dropping the kids off at the grandparents doesn't work if you're afraid the grandparents are going to get COVID. Exactly. It's just completely effed every which way in the last year and a half. And... Or if they actually did got, get COVID, right? Like, and you don't want the kids to get it or God forbid something terrible happened to them. Or they're right? not well anymore. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, just so many extremely important points. And I I think the thing that stands out to me the most in this kind of 
back and forth between Gosgraves and Swank is that one, it's not an individual problem anymore. Like the whole premise that it's like one person, like one family's individual problem to figure out their child care is like such a national American embarrassment. But like that whole premise is just gone. And then the other one that it's not a business problem and it's not a government problem it's an actual issue with our society so that everyone has to step up and like refigure out how we're going to have women in the workforce and have a thriving economy because like i thought that's what we wanted i thought that's what like america's all about but if it's like shits on women i guess we'll deal with it well and i just want to two things i want to say here and then we probably have to move on to another segment number one is we should probably stop laughing at the term infrastructure of care. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, Important. The, I mean, that's for another episode. The issues that it's trying to solve are extremely important. Yes, absolutely. And number two, I would highly recommend folks listen to, if they haven't already, the episode of The Daily from earlier in the last week looking at Japan as a lens to understand what might be in the future of the United States, a future where our population is declining because we are having less children. And one of the reasons that Japan finds itself in a situation where they're having less children is that women in that workforce live in a culture in which they are required to do pretty much all of the childcare extremely patriarchal society and women are saying look i can't work full-time and do this this is untenable and as a result a lot of women in that society say forget it i don't want a family i don't want a a man and a child or two or three because it's just going to be too much and so as a result they don't have a lot of families yeah or as many families yeah absolutely. and there's a lot of women who who make that decision so yeah, are child free by choice right and right. so is that the future that america wants or is prioritizing yeah right uh, speaking of resources i also recommend listening to the double shift it is a podcast by katherine goldstein and angela garbez both super wicked smart ladies but it's a podcast about mothers but it's not a podcast about parenting so it's kind of it's a really interesting premise of how do we talk about mothers outside of what they do for their children but just their actual own experience and the latest season explores so many different facets of how mothers are impacted by the pandemic incredible incredible work I'm sure you could talk hours. We could talk hours and hours about it, but we do have other segments. We do. Brendan, you had something about journalism you wanted to share? Yes. So the one thing that I wanted to highlight in the journalism segment was from Face the Nation. As I mentioned earlier, there were some, it was, the whole episode was just overflowing with what I thought could be provocative ideas from pretty much every interview that took place. And so I just wanted to briefly look through what some of these interesting ideas were and then maybe take a moment to discuss with you, Naomi, like how do you think the episode got to these issues? Like how did the show, whether it's Dickerson or the producers or the bookers, like how did they surface so much interesting insight 
that is thought-provoking and could encourage, you know, multiple debates and discussions that go far beyond what was able to be contained on the episode itself. But, I mean, I feel like you could write an essay on each of these topics. So here's the first. The topics range from pandemic recovery to cybersecurity to Republican politics to the decision-making that led to the disastrous effects of this pandemic on our society. Beginning with the pandemic recovery, the show actually started with an interview with Scott Gottlieb. Now, I can't remember the last time Face the Nation began with Scott Gottlieb, but I think part of it was this recognition that what he had to say was pretty big, and I was surprised by what he said here. Take a listen to former FDA commissioner, Dr. Scott Gottlieb. And so I think we're at the point in time when we can start lifting these ordinances in a wholesale fashion. And people have to take precautions based on their individual risk. They have to judge their own individual risk and decide whether or not they're going to avoid crowds or wear masks based on their circumstances. But we've always said from a public health standpoint that we would set as a metric maybe when we get down to 10 cases per 100,000 people on a daily basis. Well, half the country's there right now. If you want to be more conservative and say five cases per 100,000 people, well, this week, by this week, probably about a quarter of states will be there. So we're at the point right now we could start lifting these ordinances and allowing people to resume normal activity. Certainly outdoors, we shouldn't be putting limits on gatherings anymore. We should be encouraging people to go outside. And in the states where prevalence is low, vaccination rates are high, and we have good testing in place, so we're identifying infections, I think we could start lifting these restrictions indoors as well on a broad basis. So is it fair to interpret what you're saying is that if I've been vaccinated twice, even if I'm in an elderly population, that essentially the risk for me, I shouldn't think about it as a new thing, but I should think about it basically the way it would be with a, with the regular old flu, that where we are now is comparable to something we know before in terms of the kinds of risks we would take when we operated in regular life. Look, I think that that's right. People get uncomfortable when you start comparing the, uh, the rate of you know, death and the risk of COVID to flu uh, because of some of the comparisons that have been made in the past. But I think for you know, most consumers who need something to anchor against, I think that that's a fair assessment that if you're fully vaccinated against COVID with one of the Western vaccines, your risk of having a bad outcome from COVID is about comparable to flu and maybe less because the vaccines for COVID are more effective than the vaccines for flu. So I think that that's a reasonable way for the average consumer to anchor their thinking about COVID right now. This was really surprising from Dr. Gottlieb. I did not expect him this week to come out and say, lift all the ordinances outdoors as well as indoors in half the states in our country. Everyone should be operating like this thing is over right now because we've reached such low prevalence and we have so many people protected and that's just that's just what we should be doing. We should not be uh, continuing on this path of overly cautious, in his estimation, restrictions. I mean, <laughs> it, it's funny because it's not something I would have expected. But of course, Gottlieb is going to be the person we hear this recommendation first. Every phase of this pandemic, he has said two to three weeks before anyone else. Yeah. And he's pretty much saying like, if you're vaccinated and you're an unvaccinated group, like we have to give these people permission to not be scared anymore. And that came up quite a bit in the interviews that I saw. Right. And and the part that I thought was interesting, and he goes into it in a little more detail, is the restrictions should be lifted for everybody and people should be concerned about their own personal risk. And if they feel 
uncomfortable, they should put a mask on. But otherwise, the basis, the rules should be anyone can be without a mask in these states that are, you know, becoming safer and safer. Now, my question, I mean, that's I kind of answered my own question. But my question is like, what about those who are not yet fully vaccinated? Shouldn't we encourage a little longer precautions until that percentage goes up? Right. For those folks, because there's a lot of talk about what do we do for those who are vaccinated? But there's still, I believe right now in this country, more more people are about equal who are not vaccinated as there are people who are vaccinated. So we do have to think about them. But hey, disease prevalence is kind of what a lot of these things are all about. Right. And if the, if the disease isn't in the community, even if someone's unvaccinated, then the risk is low. Right. I mean, there's lots of risky things the diseases that exist in the world, but if they're not in your community, the risk is, is, is low. Very, very provocative. I'm not ready to get completely on board the train, but we do have to, as you mentioned, Naomi, recognize that when a lot of health experts at the end of March were saying, oh, we're seeing numbers go up, we're seeing numbers go up, we've got to be careful, we've got to hold back, and then the numbers went straight down. Well, Gottlieb predicted it, right? He, he was never saying at the end of March, like, things are going to go back out and we're going to up and we're going to have another surge in April. Like, no, no way. Not once did he say that. And he was right. And a lot of people were wrong. And there hasn't been a lot of recognition of that fact. So moving on from there, John Dickerson also spoke with, as we mentioned earlier, the Commerce Secretary. This is Gina Raimondo. And it was literally right at the end of the discussion, they touched on the cybersecurity attack, the cyber attack that took place against Colonial Pipeline, which operates about 45% of the gas and the gas pipelines that supply the East Coast. And this is hugely, hugely concerning. It's probably the most serious attack ever on a piece of our infrastructure that we know of. And it probably demanded a little more discussion than what we heard at the end of the episode here or the end of the interview. But Dickerson's question and the little bit that we heard here is very thought provoking and demands more consideration. I want to ask you about a piece of news on the uh, co- uh, Colonial Pipeline that was hit with a cyber attack. Uh, this uh, uh, supplies roughly 45% of the gas to the East Coast. Uh, a, do you think it'll have an economic impact? And then B, um, what, is this what businesses now have to worry about? Because this isn't the first business to be hit by a ransomware attack. This is what businesses now have to worry about, and I will be working uh, very closely with Ali Mayorkas on this. Uh, It's a top priority for the administration. Unfortunately, these sorts of attacks are becoming more frequent. They're here to stay, and we have to work in partnership with business to secure secure networks to defend ourselves against these attacks. As it relates to Colonial, the president was briefed yesterday. It's an all-hands-on-deck effort right now. And we are working closely with the company, state and local officials to you know, make sure that they get back up to normal operations as quickly as possible and there aren't disruptions in supply. So the thought-provoking thing in that is kind of the question that Dickerson asked. Is this something that every business is going to have to be concerned about right now? Is this just the way of the world? And she says, yes, businesses do have to worry about this right now. There's a lot of detail that wasn't in the question, that wasn't discussed. But the basics are that this cyber attack 
as of now, they believe it was not perpetrated by a foreign power aiming to disrupt America, but by a criminal organization, and this has happened a lot, that breaks into the computer systems of businesses or cities or municipalities or hospitals, takes over those computer systems and says, look, we're in charge now. You can't touch your computer system or you can't access the data on it that is critical to your operations until you pay us some money, right? So it's basically they hold it at ransom. And that's what they call it, ransomware. Hugely, hugely disruptive and concerning, but also not only concerning in the sense that this is a new criminal enterprise, but that if criminals can get into these systems, so can foreign governments, so can terrorist organizations that want to cause harm and won't have a price tag at the end of it, but will have, you know, mayhem, panic, and death at the end of it. So hugely concerning issue. And I really hope that this isn't one of several ransomware attacks that everyone, you know, talks about for 30 seconds. (laughs) And then And then five years from now, there is a massive attack that hits all of our infrastructure. And oh, my God. Do you remember? Whoever saw it it coming. I think it was like 2016 and like half of the Internet shut down. Yes. And we just stopped talking about it like 36 hours later. I still think about that. Yeah. Yeah. Sketch. It's like all these sketchy things that are happening. And they're like the reports. Just like ignore it, please. They're, yeah, they're Thank literally you. they're literally in the disaster movie. The reports that everyone's ignoring on TV before <laughs> the aliens arrive. Like, eh, whatever. I'm, you it's know, not that big a deal. Whatever. We're going out to dinner. Whatever. Well, kudos for this even being covered on your shows. It did not come up a lick on any of the three shows I watched. Yeah, it was covered again in in the interview that Dickerson had with Representative Adam Kinzinger. He is a Republican congressman from Illinois, but this that part of the conversation was not what was a real interesting highlight to me. The interesting highlight to me was something that Kinzinger said that, I don't know, I hadn't actually heard before, but it was a theory about how Donald Trump has continued to keep his grip on the Republican Party. This was fascinating to me, and I hadn't really put the pieces together until I heard it on Face the Nation today. Do you think Donald Trump's power in the Republican Party comes from his ability to grow the electorate, reach out to new voters, or because members are scared of crossing him? I think it's the latter. I think at the beginning, look, he was able to reach to a sector that we should naturally win, people that are struggling to make ends meet. We also lost a lot of people in that process. But Donald Trump was done after January 6th. When Kevin McCarthy said, you know, this is Donald Trump's fault, make no mistake, he was done. He was sulking away to Mar-a-Lago, didn't even go to the inauguration. And two weeks later, when you look at the financial side of it, and you look at the fact there's an election in two years and we want the majority, Kevin McCarthy went and so did Steve Scalise, and they put the paddles on Donald Trump and resurrected him in the party. And everybody after that became scared to death of who Donald Trump was again. And that's what empowered him. And everybody went quiet. So this is a very interesting theory. Of course, we all remember, I certainly remember, when we saw Kevin McCarthy go down to Florida and meet with Donald Trump. And it was talked about on the Sunday shows. And I feel like a lot of the conversation was around, oh, look at Kevin McCarthy. He's waffling. Before he said that Trump was this 
you know, responsible party as it, you know, irresponsible party, but he was responsible for some of the insurrection that took place on January 6th. And now here he here's Kevin McCarthy going down to pay tribute to Donald Trump. But in Kinzinger's telling, no, McCarthy breathed new life into Trump. Trump was defeated and now has risen again in the party. That's a very interesting theory. Had you heard that or, or thought of that before, Naomi? I haven't heard this. I think, I don't know, I think that gives t- a little too much credence to McCarthy. I think McCarthy is a politically ambitious and hungry politician who and political leader and will explore all avenues. And so I don't, I don't think I believe that McCarthy resurfaced like the Trump enthusiasm. He just kind of latched onto it. Interesting. Yeah, I feel like in McCarthy's telling, maybe that's what he would think that like, oh, he kind of saw the the tide turning and people were going to be supporting Trump anyway. So he better get down there first and and, you know, shake hands with the guy. But it is an interesting theory. But speaking of theories, though, what I don't know, my question is like, how did all this these interesting insights get airtime on this episode of Face the Nation? Obviously, there are insights on a lot of these shows pretty frequently, but it just seemed like the sheer number of insights, and I didn't even name them all because we're running out of time, was pretty high for this particular episode. Anything stand out to you having heard these moments? I'm just kind of curious as to how he was able to kind of thread and do his transitions, because I think it's interesting to have lots of insights, but it's hard to make it feel like a cohesive show sometimes. Yeah, I do think that something was lost in terms of cohesion and having so many separate conversations. But I think one of the things John Dickerson was able to do was speak about a variety of topics to each of his guests. And so he could kind of like segue from one guest to another with that continuity of topic before moving on to something else. But I, I don't know. It was, I think it has something to do with some of the astute questions that Dickerson has going into these interviews. Part of it is, I'm noticing in a number of his questions, he says, is it fair to interpret what you're saying as blank? You know, he offers them something to chew on. Just as we heard in this question to Adam Kinzinger, it's like, do you think Trump's power is A, B, or C? And then Kinzinger has to say, well, actually, I think it is was a little bit of C, but... And then he goes on. I think it's like giving people something to chew on encourages them to kind of fill in their own blanks or push back on, on a certain theory of the case. But, Naomi, it sounds like you might have something to say about uh, the Republican Party as it was discussed on the shows you covered. Yeah, so for my something of politics, I wanted to talk about... This focus by the shows to explore this moment in the Republican Party. It seems pretty likely that this week, the Republican caucus will likely, very strong likely, be voting Liz Cheney out of her leadership seat. She She's the third top Republican in the House of Representatives and be replacing her with Elise, I think it's Steinfeck or... Stefanik. Stefanik. And pretty much people are pissed because... Liz Cheney hasn't been peddling Trump's insanity (laughs) and lies and manipulation. And because of that, there's a actual legit movement to push her out of her leadership seat. And as I mentioned at the start of the show, it really seemed like Jake Tapper and Chuck Todd were really disturbed by this, were really perplexed and made a point. It almost felt like a formal 
objective to examine the moment, but two, to also kind of look at the potential consequences of the breakdown of one of our two political parties. So take a listen to this moment in an interview with Governor Larry Hogan. He's a Republican governor from the state of Maryland. In this clip, you'll hear him talk to Chuck Todd about just this very same issue. So I want to start with this, uh, which, which is the Lindsey Graham analysis. He says, Liz Cheney thinks uh, the party can't grow with Donald Trump. And obviously, Lindsey Graham believes the party can't grow without Donald Trump. What say you, Governor Hogan? Well, look, I think we've got to get back to winning elections again. And uh, we, we have to be able to have a Republican Party that appeals to a broader group of people. We have to get back to uh, having a bigger tent, as Reagan talked about, and uh, not continuing to uh, look. We had the worst four years we've, we've had ever in the Republican Party, Le- losing the White House, the, the, the House of Representatives and the Senate. And successful politics is about addition and multiplication, not subtraction and division. Can you explain why the party doesn't seem to hold Donald Trump responsible, responsible this when I say the party? Most of the elected leadership, you're an exception uh, at the NGA, RGA uh, apparatus, but most of the leadership uh, doesn't seem to pin this on him. I, I, you know, again, you, you sort of the record is the record. Why do you think they don't want to pin it on him? Well, I think they're concerned about retaliation from the president. Uh, they're they're concerned about, uh, you know, being attacked within the party. And, and you know, it just bothers me that you have to swear fealty to uh, the dear leader or you get kicked out of the party. It just doesn't make any sense. This reply by Governor Hogan was sounded very similar to a reply that we heard also on State of the Union when Jake Tapper interviewed the governor of Utah, who also has similar sentiments that we need to find a path for the Republican Party that shouldn't have to require such deep loyalty to President Trump. Well, and I, if I could just jump in here, because my something about politics, I think we can kind of combine these discussions because mine was very similar along very similar lines. And I feel like on the panel of Fox News Sunday, Susan Page of USA Today, Susan Page did a really good job of summarizing what exactly we heard Chuck Todd being so perplexed by in his question. Take a listen. How, how smart are House Republicans to base their chances for 2022 on getting along with and the support of Donald Trump? Well, I think that the House Republicans have adopted a, a risky strategy for a political party in tying their fortunes to the defeated presidential candidate from last time around. Uh, you know, that that's just never happened before in modern times. Usually somebody gets the nomination, loses the bid for the White House, as President Trump did in 2020, and then they move on to some other figures. Uh, we've never seen a time when the losing presidential candidate continues to dominate, continues to be the face of the political party, even to the point of meddling in these primaries. You know, at the moment, the Republican Party is pretty united. I don't see a big civil war in the Republican Party. But if that's the basis for your party, if that's the appeal that you're making, the grievances over the last election, it is hard for me to see how that appeals to voters beyond the core Trump supporters, which is, as uh, Carl Rowe pointed out, maybe down to about a third of the electorate. So really well said there, you know, how unprecedented it is for any political party to say, hey, you know, the guy who just lost, let's tie our future to him once again. Exactly. 
Yeah, I heard this from Chuck Todd as well, where why does the losing president, the president, you know, the candidate who lost, why does he have such a strong say about what the party is going to be like moving forward? And I hear what Susan Page is saying in terms of Karl Rove's comment that the Trump loyalists are about a third of the Republican electorate and that they're a growing smaller and smaller proportion. It reminded me of what I heard on this week in the panel with Chris Christie, where there seems to be a defense that that portion of the electorate is not strong, has very little influence. And I don't really buy it that the Republican Party is both making these very formal changes to get Liz Cheney out of leadership and at the same time doesn't really care about it, doesn't really care that she has been against president trump like you can't be right that's why they're doing right but according to christie there's a lot of other republicans like him who are just like not even worrying about this yeah you say the most republicans want to move on clearly the former president doesn't want to move on to the extent he's getting involved in politics at all right now it's handpicking people in the primaries coming out with messages against republicans when they don't when they cross him well it's not productive and but we shouldn't be surprised That's the way he has felt since 2.30 a.m. on election night when we sat at the other studio and watched (laughs) him give that speech. So this is nothing new here. Uh, Let me just say, I was in Dallas and Austin on Thursday and Friday. In Austin, Texas, there were eight different leaders of the Republican Party, people like Mike Pompeo to Marco Rubio um, and others who were there to speak about the future of the party. No one spoke. It was eight hours of interviews of, of leaders of the party, myself included, and no one spoke about the 2020 election. No one spoke about bamboo and ballots. Nobody spoke about grievance politics. They were talking about conservative agenda to move forward. It's 15 weeks into the Biden administration, and everyone wants the Republican Party to have reformed itself, learned from 2020, and moved on to the next thing. It doesn't happen that quickly in yep. politics. And if you look back at 2016 with the Democrats, it didn't happen that quickly with them either. There were leaders. Like I said, Mike Pompeo, Rick Scott, Tim Scott, uh, myself, Marco Rubio, uh, Tom Cotton, all who spoke in Austin on Friday afternoon, and not one of them brought up any of the issues that we're talking about here this morning. I just don't buy this. I don't buy that you are above this all, and at the same time, you take the threat of Liz Cheney so seriously. Yeah, but look, we had this one meeting where we didn't talk about it, and so therefore Mm. we don't care about it. And we're just a bunch of conservative men, super serious, like yeah, all Pompeo. Men, all many names. Exactly. It, it, you can't be both the grown-up on the playground and the bully. Like, that's not how it works. And then expect people to listen to you. Very well said. Well, let's end it there with that very impressive rhetorical insight, Naomi, of yeah, your you're own. You're not the only ones with the analogies, Brendan. Absolutely. And so... On that note, for our dialogue challenge, what what do you want to encourage people to think about in their conversations? Well, I know a lot of people are thinking about their moms or about their mothering or the mother figures that are in their life. I would encourage you to spend some time, have a conversation about the policies that made yes. their lives possible or impossible. Or more difficult than they needed to be. Exactly. If you need any ideas of any specifics, just send me a tweet because I have plenty. 
talking about it for days. And of course, you can tweet at Naomi. <laughs> at Sarah Naomi underscore. You can tweet at the show at PolylogCast. And you can tweet at me at Beastyle. You can also email us if you'd like to at podcast at polylog.com. Thanks, everyone. And we will talk with you next week. Next week. Bye. Bye.